You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's guest speaker, we have Russ Wilcox, partner at Pillar VC. And in this episode, we'll talk about, first of all, Pillar VC, how you come to life and how this is Russ's third fund that he raised. But before that, we're going to talk about Russ's company that he started and how he has managed to close 10 rounds of funding and how he managed to survive three of those rounds being down rounds. And also for those people who don't know what a down round is, we are going to explain this and explain the dangers of a down round. So Russ, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Pillar VC. Yeah. Hi. Good morning, Constine. Glad to be here. Uh, background on myself. I am um, started my career as an entrepreneur. I started three companies, the most important of which is E-Inc, which had all those funding rounds you talked about, and then uh, one in clean energy and one in uh, life science. So I really have had a career focused on commercializing innovation, mostly science-based innovation. And then angel investing in other types of other types of startups, which led me to reunite about five years ago with one of my good friends, Jamie Goldstein, uh, and Sarah Hodges, and they had started a a new venture fund called Pillar, which we'll talk about. And at Pillar now, I'm a general partner, and I focus on making investments in any kind of innovative company, uh, maybe you know using data or AI or um, might be uh, new science, new biology, so all kinds of innovation. Right, lovely. That is a very interesting focus, and we'll definitely talk a little bit more about that. Um, but let's start with a standard question for all our VCs. Um, can you just tell us quickly about what you invest in from uh, with Pillar VC? What stage, average check size, and what industry do you invest in? Yeah, so Pillar is a seed stage focused fund based in Boston. We are focused on uh, writing, you know, all kinds of industries, but as I said, mostly uh, innovation. We do right now about one third um, software, one third biology, and one third crypto. And our typical check size is two million, but it might be fifty k up to six million. Sort of fits the situation. We have uh, we're on our third fund. Our third fund is one hundred and seventy million. And um, so we have a total of 350 million under management, about 50 or 60 deals so far. Nice. Congratulations on getting to that level and looking forward to seeing that number grow. I'm hopeful that in five years, I'm going to interview you with your fourth fund and we're going to talk about some more fun stuff. But now let's let's talk about your previous company. Let's talk about those three companies that you have launched. Let's just uh, briefly touch onto each one and then focus on E-Ink because it appears to be the most interesting one that you have run so far. Uh, so first question is how many of those three have actually succeeded, aka exited, IPO'd, were acquired or anything that can be remotely close to a successful exit. <laughs> uh, okay, so E Inc. Um, was the one that had three down rounds, and but then ultimately sold for half a billion dollars. So nice. I'm, I'm going to count that as a success. Yeah. We've had, you know, uh, over a hundred million um, devices sold with E Inc. Electronic paper screens, and including uh, all the Amazon Kindle paper whites use E Inc. and bunch of other devices, a bunch of electronic shelf price labels. 
I think total consumer purchases of that e-reader category uh, enabled by that technology is over $10 billion. So that's a success. It's, it's um, definitely a success. Yeah. And then after that, um, you know, I sold that company. I took a year off. I traveled around the world with my family and uh, came back. I think like a lot of founders who've sold their first company uh, sort of consumed with the idea that I should try to do something very risky and very positive for humanity. And so mm -hmm. my next two ventures were sort of science moonshots. Uh, one was a new kind of alternative nuclear energy that was oh. safer, cleaner and cheaper that uh, raised capital from Peter Thiel. And another was a, um, a, a cure for cancer that would polarize macrophages so that the macrophages would fight solid tumors. And, uh, you know, neither of those succeeded. The uh, nuclear one ran into a new political administration that was kind of mm. didn't believe in the value of clean energy. Let's just say that Yikes. and it became very hard. <laughs> and what we did with that is we um, we open sourced all of our science. So everything we found out we put out in the public domain so others could stand on our shoulders. So is that a success or not? I mean, in a way, we're moving the ball forward on this yeah. better form of nuclear energy. Uh, and then the cancer cure, we were able to show with less than a million dollars of spending that it was not going to be, uh, um, you know, not going to be a good enough cancer cure. There's a lot of things that are like mildly helpful, but yeah, in order to really uh, get through and make a drug, you know, which takes a billion dollars of, of capital, it has to be really excellent. And we were able to show very quickly that this was good, but not great. Mm -hmm. And we stopped the project. Uh, and so in a way, I view that as success in the sense that, um, you know, I, my goal as a, as a business person is to, is you can't change the laws of physics. So mm -hmm. what you want to do with a deep tech is find out very quickly whether it's going to work or not to kind of disprove your own thesis. And we were able to find out quickly and efficiently that this didn't replicate uh, robustly enough to justify a company. And okay, we shut it down. And then it was time for the fourth thing. And that's when I uh, switched over to venture capital so I could try to do many of these projects in mm -hmm. parallel. Perfect. Love that story of uh, the journey towards VC. And hopefully you'll keep doing some good stuff for the humanity here. And yeah, I mean, that was definitely success. If you're first, you have proved that one of the options is just not working. So other people will not spend their time doing it. So that is definitely a success. But let's talk about the success that was successful in the financial way as well. So let's talk about E-Ink. Um, first of all, you have raised 10 rounds. Out of those 10 rounds, three rounds were down rounds. So let's start by explaining our listeners what a down round is and what's the problem with the down round. So Russ, can you just briefly explain that? And why do VCs don't like down rounds? Okay, well, um, of course... The, when you're raising capital, you'll pick a share price. You might raise your seed round at a dollar a share, and that might represent, say, 10 million valuation in the next round, 50, and the next round, 200. Uh, in the case of E-Ink, we got up to our Series D was a $300 million valuation, and we raised about 100 million. And uh, so a down round is you go to raise your next round, and the company's not doing that well, and it's not on the trajectory that would justify a continued increase in share price and you can't even do a flat round, which would be the same share price. Really, there's no takers and you're going to have to decrease the valuation. And this is really bad for uh, VCs in a couple of respects. Number one, they have to recognize losses and it makes them embarrassed for their LPs. Uh, number two, mm -hmm. there's for you as a founder, um, 
the way that uh, most VC comes in is as preferred stock. So most VCs are going to get all their money back before you make anything. Right. And so <laughs> if the price goes down, basically they need to own a substantial portion of what's left. So if I raised 100 million on 300 and the price went down to 50, then then I get nothing and they all have to take a 50% write off and I and now the management team owns nothing. And so uh, there's a big fight. It's almost like going through a bankruptcy and every party, it's a very complicated negotiation because each party might or might not put in a few more dollars to keep it going. And everybody has to approve the final deal. And there's a question of, do the management team get some more stock in the new entity going forward? And if so, which managers were to blame and should be fired and which stay? <laughs> so it's a mess. It's like going through a bankruptcy. Right. It does sound like that. So let's talk how you survived three of those. And second question right away, uh, were those consecutive? Was it just like an unfortunate couple of years or was it at different times uh, just because of XYZ reasons, but those were different reasons? Yes, they were consecutive. Um, let's see. As I said, we'd raised a lot of capital to get up to a 300 million valuation it, during the frothy years uh in the early 2000s so the internet era was pumping all the prices mm -hmm. basically and so we found it easy to raise capital and then one tactic we used for something industrial like you know a display some vcs won't touch that so you need to get other sources of capital And we did a lot of uh deals with big companies motorola intel phillips um of 12 different like fortune 500 size companies took a lot of work well, a big company uh, is generally not price sensitive, so you can jack the valuation up, and we did. And so we had a very high valuation. <laughs> but as the product, you know, we ran into product problems. We weren't mm -hmm. able to finish the product. We spread our, we had so much cash, we thought we'd just try lots of different things. We spread ourselves too thin. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. We should have just focused on one thing. So, uh, but when it's easy to raise capital, you start to spend it without really thinking that through. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then when we had our first down round, I think we made a classic mistake, which is that the investors found it so painful that we did a partial down round, which is a big mistake. So instead of going from 300 down to three and restarting, you know, really early and wiping out all the old people, all the old investors and just having the new investors in, we went from 300 down to 40. So the old investors still had a stake and they were still at the table. They were still, you know, really uh, complaining about the, the down round. And so basically the next year, we still hadn't reached a market. Probably the market price would have been 5 million, but we still kept a partially artificially inflated uh, valuation. And uh, so with deep tech, you know, at the beginning, if you say you've got some great breakthrough, in our case, you know, the ability to have paper that could rewrite itself, you know, a complete library of Congress in the palm of your hand, very exciting stuff. And so you get this great um, buzz, but then you get this trough of disillusionment. And at that moment, if you have to raise capital, I mean, the actual value is very low. It was shown that the tech was very hard to commercialize. So anyway, my point is, if you have to do a down round, you should bring it all the way. This is my advice to, that I give now to CEOs. If you're in this uh, situation, you want to get it down as low as you can. And I thought, uh, Constantine, that as a CEO, you know, my job was to try to preserve my shareholders. And so that's why I thought 40 was better mm -hmm. than like five. Yeah. But really, it's very damaging 
uh, for you not to sort of admit reality and go all the way down. And one reason is every time there's a down round, remember all the, all the common stocks getting wiped out. So yeah. you have to restart your vesting clock. So who are you fooling? So what happens is you're like, okay, I've been in this deal for, I've been working on this for seven years. Now I have four more years to go. And then you, if you delay the full day of reckoning for an extra year or two by sort of trying to rehype the, the, the down round, you just restart <laughs> your clock again, two years later. And I had three in a row. Um, and you know, what you want to do if that happens is you'll have a choice. Do you take options or do you try to buy back into the new, at the new cheaper stock? And for tax reasons, it's much better to buy back in because you get capital gains. And so the first time I bought back in for like a few tens of thousands, by the time, the second time I had to buy back in for about, you know, equal to the mortgage on my house. Oh, to buy back in the third time, um, I had to pledge an amount. I had to take an amount of debt on my personal uh, a balance sheet, which was equal to triple the mortgage on my house. Yikes! <laughs> and uh, I never, okay. I never really discussed that with anybody in my family. But um, <laughs> I figured enough. if I went back into like management consulting and I worked for twenty years, I'd be able to repay that debt. So it wasn't thoroughly <laughs> irresponsible. Uh, but you know, it's a. It's a really risky situation. Uh, and again, if you go all the way down, then you'd only have to do that once and it's still manageable. Mm -hmm. So right. basically, if you're going to take a haircut, get the buzz cut. Right. Uh, yeah, get the bus cut for sure. Don't try to go for the style at this point. Uh, but let's let's talk about how the common stock is being wiped out. Can you briefly explain how the system works? So investors definitely keep their preferred shares. What happens to the common stock? So let's just describe a scenario let's say you have five investors all of them holds let's say 50 percent of your company in preferred stocks you as a founder hold the rest 50 in common stocks what happens when you down round and let's say you are going from a hundred million valuation to a 50 million valuation what's right. going to happen to your stock so before on paper you guys have a valuation of 100 million and you the founder own 50 million worth but it's common the five investors each own 10 million worth, so they have 50 million, but is preferred. So right now it looks like the company split evenly. However, let's say there's some adverse event and now your company drops, it's no longer worth 100. So the way preferred stock works is it's first in line when you sell the company and it generally gets all its money back before uh, Common gets anything. So let's say it goes, your valuation goes from 100 to 90 it's no longer a 50-50 split. Now they get 50 and you only get 40. Value goes down to 80, they get 50, you only get 30. Value goes down to 70, they get mm -hmm. 50, you get 20. Yep. All the way down to 50. Now, at that point, they own all of the company and you get none. And the common stock is worthless. And if you want to raise cash at that point, what they'll do, they usually don't erase your shares. They just like introduce an extra zero, sort of like, you know, the currency in Argentina or Zimbabwe or something, they just <laughs> add more zeros and, and you just get washed out. Um, and so that, and then they might give you new options in the sort of with the extra zeros on them at the end. Mm -hmm. Right. That is a very unfortunate event to run into, but congrats on surviving three of those. That is, that is some high level maneuvering right there. And you did have a successful exit at the end. So it was not for nothing. Just one more question and we'll move on to talk more about Pillar VC specifically and your current journey. Uh, but 
how did you manage to survive three? How did you manage? Was it just your negotiation skills? Was it just, you know, investors who believed in you so much that they were like, you know what, we're going to stick to it. We're going to throw in some more money. We're going to make sure that this company survives or, you know, X amount of years. Well, I think this is a, the, the general topic. I see this is how do you as a CEO report bad news to mm-hmm. your investors? And there's really, you know, one approach is I'm going to hide it. I'm going to downplay it. I'm just going to um, try to emphasize, accentuate the positive. Um, but I think one thing in hindsight, we made a lot of mistakes, but one thing we did well is that we just gave the even-handed, unvarnished reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think even though the results were results that were not good, um, people trusted at least that they were being told the truth. And as long as you then, yeah, you do need to find at least one anchor investor who is willing to make a bet on you and who will lead the recap. Um, but as long as that's happening and people believe you have your integrity and you can articulate a good plan and explain why, why it's a better plan, then uh, at least some investors will want to come along and they want to have a seat at the table and they were there for good reasons. And so um, I think being clear with people uh, and and giving the, them the story they can trust. Um, don't wait to share bad news is a big element. The other element I'll just throw in is that, you know, your job as a CEO keeps changing. The company's growing, events are moving. Really, it's like you have a new job description every six months. And if you don't prepare yourself to keep learning, you won't survive. So one thing that uh, we did during that time was, um, try very hard to keep listening to feedback, keep improving, keep reading books, keep taking classes, keep listening to podcasts and just improve yourself every day. And, you know, if people can see that you've got an upward trajectory, they may be frustrated. It's not all the way up yet, but they will, they'll be your fans and they'll wait patiently, more patiently for you as long as they can see you're doing your best to improve. Right. Yeah. Honesty is the key in the relationship with the investors. One, you fail their trust. You're done. You are done. And the word will spread for sure. That part definitely does not stay hidden for long. Um, so on this note, let's move on and uh, talk about Pillar VC at last. So one of the unique traits of the fund is actually that most of the uh, managers, managers and partners in the fund have experience building their own companies, right? Mm, yeah, that's right. And <clears throat> how transferable do you think that experience is? So from uh, what I've seen personally by interviewing hundreds of investors is that a lot of them have experience building the companies, but is just not relevant. Or they think that some investors, especially those who are younger and those who have uh, opened just their first fund, think that you know the business that I built is the silver bullet for startups. I'm just going to try to replicate that success for every company I invest in. And they try to go into the subjects that they don't quite understand. So from your perspective, how transferable is that knowledge that you have acquired by building your own companies, for example? Um, That's a great question. And and I'm in year five and I'm still trying to decide that for myself. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think the, the material changes with each company, the industry is different. The specifics are different. Um, and I also think that it's a great mistake for the VC to think that he or she knows the answer and that it's about transfer of knowledge. Like you're working together to figure out a puzzle. And, um, so, you know, the clues are there and you're, you may not know 
the right answer, but you're on the same side as the founder and trying to figure it out. And uh, what does help a lot is kind of a sense of rhythm, of, um, of process, of kind of the spirit of just being on an adventure and trying to, to face mysteries and not being rattled when there's setbacks. So many, or, you know, generalized things like how would you hire someone or how do you do a good job interview or, you know, um, how do you explain stock options to someone? How should you write a good pitch deck? So there are certain universal things that are absolutely transferable. And there are other things that I think are about attitude, which I believe resonate pretty well with the founder. And it, certainly when I was a founder, I really preferred investors who had been there and done that before. Um, and who also were humble enough not to say they had the answer, but at least they were with me totally in spirit. 100%. Having humble investors who are also knowledgeable, that is a rare combination right there. Very hard to find. So if you do run into those, definitely grab them and try to get them on your cap table. Um, so on this note, let's move on and talk a little bit more about technicalities. And that is the fact that you mentioned that you actually like patents on our pre-interview call. Um, so question is, when do the patents make sense and in which industries do they make sense? Yeah, I'm often asked, uh, should I file patents? And it can be pretty expensive. And mm -hmm. I can think of uh, three situations. First of all, obviously, if you're a deep tech company and you're truly innovating and you're inventing things that never existed before, you're going to spend a lot of time and money on patents. And actually, I wrote this whole uh, guide called How to Build a Patent Fortress, such as on our website. And um, that's a good thing to read if you're, if you're doing that. And then the alternative, the other end of the spectrum is somebody who is really inventing a new business model, but there is no technical innovation. So like we have an investment in Conjure, they will bring you furniture for your rental apartment. So you show up, it's already furnished, you leave, they take it away, it's all white glove service and it's really nice stuff. That's about you know a, providing a service that meets the needs of millennials and Gen Z. And it, it's not really a technical question. So there's clearly not gonna be a patent there. And then in the middle is, let's say that you have an innovation and it's just a small differentiation. Um, you know, like we use a, 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 you know, something that makes our air conditioner 5% more energy efficient. It's not really gonna be blocking the competition. It's just nice. And then you would file like one patent just to be able to say you're patent pending. So really looking at the amount of invention and for most people, it's either none or one um, to be able to say you have one. And then in, in, but in certain circumstances, you're going to be spending perhaps millions of dollars and, and you probably know it if that's your case. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Personally, not a huge fan of patents, but yeah, deep tech, that's a different subject. So in that case, you might be excused and just yeah. might as well file for that patent the, if it does make sense. Um, Constantine, the one thing I'll point out there is sure. you're never going to get value from the patent while you're a startup because you don't have the balance sheet to be able to sue anybody. The yeah. patents are really like in chess, there's the end game. The patents are an end game asset. Your acquirer will be able to get value from them. Like if IBM buys you, they're going to be able to sue someone with them. So you, you want to build them up. They are an important asset. Um, but you're never going to use them, which it's a sort of a funny irony, but I do think they can be valuable for deep tax. Mm -hmm. Right. And by the way, there is a great movie about specifically that subject about small companies making patents and then big companies just 
abusing those patents because they realize that they don't have the money to sue them called mm -hmm. the billion dollar codes recommend to yeah. everyone who is interested in looking how uh shitty google is <laughs> uh all right so on this note let's move on and talk about the investments in deep tech that you've made so is there anything particularly interesting that you would like to share before we wrap up the episode well um boy we have a range of deep tech investments um and as i said we're right now doing one third of our uh investing in biology and biotech and all of that is is in a way is a deep tech so it's so exciting um and i i struggle to pick out one you know one we just had uh now it's a 50 million dollar um series a is kula bio kula is using microbes to manufacture nitrogen fertilizer and so you get um fertilizer in a fully sustainable package so you just spray this stuff on your field and then you don't need to put chemicals on your on your soil and so it's organic um it can be made in a sustainable way it's it's not requiring any fossil fuels it doesn't have any nitrogen runoff so it keeps the nitrogen out of the water and it could be if if the yields get to where we want it could be cheaper than haber bosch and so it could revolutionize the fertilizer industry which is a hundred billion dollar industry um, so that's an example of how biology is changing everything that they we're in the middle of a great revolution in biology uh, and so it's new kinds of fertilizer. We also have investments, new kind of uh, synthetic cotton, synthetic leather, uh, you know, sustainable coffee, um, all sorts of products in addition to medicines and uh, cell and tissue therapies being invented. It's a really uh, fertile moment for biology. Mm -hmm. It sure is. I've definitely heard a ton of inventions in that space and seems like they're being off. Maybe, you know, one day people won't be hungry at last on this note let's go to the call to action and which is which is the last question of today's episode and it's very simple what do you want the listener to do right after this episode is over russ okay uh go to pillar.vc and check out something we have called the founders playlist and this is like a multimedia uh, playground with all sorts of entrepreneurs and investors giving advice on hundreds of different topics. And so you can pick out whatever the problem of the day is that you're facing and check it out. And in particular, I'll just draw your attention to this cool tool we have there called the term sheet grader. So mm -hmm. when you go out and you raise capital, you get a term sheet, you're like, is this good? Are these people trying to advantage of me? You can just go to our term sheet grader and plug in your term sheet and find out if it's fair or not. Oh, is that technology automated or is it someone on the back end just actually checking it out? No, it's automated. You have sort of sliders. Mm -hmm. Really, it, all term sheets, like there's five or six. Yeah. It's really simple for the VC. It's pretty much multiple choice on each question. Yep. And so we just ask you, like, which did they pick? And then you can compute a score. All right. That is very interesting. I'll be sure to leave the link in the description of this yeah. episode. And as usual, of course, there's going to be a link to Russ's LinkedIn. And of course, there's going to be my shameless plug-in mentioning the course that our team has developed specifically for founders trying to figure out how to reach out to the right investors. If you want to try to figure out how to do that in the right way, definitely check out the description of this episode because the links are going to be there. And as usually, have a good day.